0: Greater Discourse at Asapura, the 39th Sutta in the Majjhima Kaya. And now we were discussing the section on the abandoning of the five hindrances. Last time I pointed out that the Buddha declares that there are five mental states which he calls Nivarana, hindrances or obstructions, because these are the main obstacles to the purification of the mind, to the development of Samadhi, concentration, and Panya, wisdom. And the Buddha is like the great physician who prescribes different medicines for different illnesses. And so as the, I mentioned the first hindrance is sensual desire or general covetousness or craving for the things of the world. And the remedy against that, specifically for the form of sensual desire, is the asubha meditation, the meditation on the parts of the body. And also we could include in that the contemplation of the corpse in different stages of decay. This is mentioned in the Satipatthana Sutta and elsewhere. And then as a kind of general remedy for desire, In all-purpose medicine, one could say, there is the contemplation of death, reflection on the inevitability of death. Then, the second hindrance is ill-will, anger, or resentment, and hatred. And the medicine against this specific medicine is Metta bhavana Maitri, the meditation on loving kindness. And those are the two I say the two big hindrances or the two fundamental hindrances. Then there are three other hindrances which are, you know, not as powerful emotion emotionally. As desire and ill will, but they're—we can say that they're persistent disturbances of the mind, and also they are persistent obstructions to the development of meditation, concentration. The third is a compound of two hindrances usually translated sloth and torpor, in Pali, Tina, meet And these two are very similar, which is why they're grouped together. But I think that there is maybe a subtle difference between them, which is why the Buddha divides this hindrance into two. Even I think the English word sloth and torpor may be not so adequate, but the Pali word tina, actually I prefer the rendering dullness and drowsiness. So tina, the first sloth, is actually dullness of the mind. So, even though one might not be sleepy and drowsy, but there's a kind of heaviness in the mind, and a kind of dull quality to the mind, so the mind just cannot get sharp and bright and clearly aware, even though one might not be falling asleep or drowsy in the mind, but it's just like the mind is Well, we're having this weather these days, where you just go outside, and there's this dull, grey sky, and it's not pouring rain, and it's not heavy black rain clouds, but there's just no sunlight, and the sky is just like steel grey, and it doesn't seem to be very little wind, no motion in the sky. and The whole weather just seems very dull and dreary. So tina, sloth or dullness, is that quality of the mind. Then the other hindrance in this group is called tina mitam, mita, which is rendered here torpor or drowsiness. This is the actual quality of the sleepiness in the mind, but not the natural sleepiness when you the body gets naturally tired at night and one wants to lie down and sleep. But this is a heavy, oppressive type of sleepiness that descends on the mind, especially when doing meditation, even after one has had a full night's sleep, a good night's sleep. But just because the mind is not able to get brightened up and sharp and concentrated, so then sometimes there comes this heaviness, oppressiveness (coughs) and through the teen of the dullness and then when that dullness and heaviness comes, then the mind starts sinking (laughs) and sometimes dropping off into momentary sleeping state. That is drowsiness. This will be maybe if we're using the example of the weather, this is like a day when you come out in the morning and there's a mist over the town, kind of light wet mist and sometimes very light drops of, of rain come, just a drizzle, a light drizzle. And so these two qualities, tina and mita, dullness and drowsiness, there is subtle difference between them, but they both have the same quality, or the uniting quality, of being heavy states of mind, heavy, debilitating states, states which Press the mind down, and therefore the Buddha has linked them together as sloth and torpor, dullness or drowsiness. And then the Buddha has prescribed various remedies for combating this dullness and drowsiness. And here in the sutta, the Yasapura sutta, he mentions one of the most basic ways of overcoming this dullness and drowsiness. He says that, we're reading now, in paragraph 13, abandoning sloth and torpor, he abides free from sloth and torpor, percipient of life, mindful and fully aware. So the remedy or antidote which is mentioned here which is one amongst many antidotes that the Buddha recommends, is called the perception of light. In Pali it's called aloka sanya which means perception of light and this involves developing an internal a mental perception of a ball of light. One can begin, if the mind is getting dull, drowsy, dark, when the mind is dark with this dullness and drowsiness, then one might begin with an actual light, like a even just looking up momentarily at the sun, if it's the, if the day, or at the moonlight, if if there's a full moon, or a candle flame, just to get a mental image of light, and then developing within the mind an awareness of light, imagining a bright light, and imagining that light flooding into the mind, and making the mind very clear and luminous. Then also in that same passage, the Buddha mentions two other qualities which we've already discussed. Being mindful and fully aware. That is, one tries to arouse and strengthen mindfulness and clear comprehension. And sometimes when the meditator is sitting meditation, even when he tries to visualize a light the light <laughs> gets swamped by the darkness, <laughs> the heaviness and drought and the heaviness and dullness of Tina mita. And so one way then to combat dullness and drowsiness is to give up the sitting posture and to practice walking meditation, chak chak satman bhava. And when one is practicing walking meditation, then one is constantly stirring up sati and sampajanya, mindfulness and full awareness, in order to walk back and forth. One doesn't walk just like one ordinarily does, but one walks briskly, but mindfully, clearly aware of walking step-by-step, left-right, left-right. when one comes to the end of the walkway, aware of stopping, pausing, turning, and starting to walk the other way, left-right, left-right, stopping, turning, standing, starting. And so when one does this for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, then one is stirring up birya, That's energy, effort, and one is walking with mindfulness and one is aware of one's actions, that is, sampajanya, full awareness. (laughs) And so when one practices in that way, then mindfulness and awareness are established, then when they become well-established, then one can return to the sitting position. But sometimes, <laughs> even when one does that, then blup! <laughs> <laughs> After one gets comfortable, then <laughs> Tina, Mita, come back. Now, there's a famous sutta in the samyutta Nikaya where the Buddha has given instructions to the great disciple, Venerable Mogalana on combating sloth and torpor. Everybody knows that Mogalana was the second chief disciple of the Buddha, and he was the foremost disciple in the exercise of psychic powers, Hidi. But it's not so well known that Mogalana had quite a difficult struggle trying to reach arhatship. He did not have, well, his path was pretty quick in that he did it in one week. But during that one week, he had a lot of disturbance from kilesas, from defilements. And what was a particularly major obstruction for him was this tina mida, dullness and drowsiness. So the Buddha had to come to Moggallana and to give him eight pieces of advice for overcoming sloth and torpor, I'll just mention what these eight pieces of advice are. <coughs> First, he tells Mogalana that at whatever thought, torpor, drowsiness comes to you, then you should not give attention to that thought and you should not dwell on it frequently. It seems in some cases, particular thoughts will cause the mind to become dull and drowsy. I don't know why certain thoughts should have that ability, but for certain people that might be the case. And so in that case, the first remedy the Buddha recommends is not to let the mind dwell on that thought, to turn it to some other object. Perhaps if one is doing a calming type of meditation, like anapanasati, and then the mind becomes very well concentrated and very comfortable, it just can happen that through that mental comfort of the concentration, if the energy level is not high enough, the mind will slip by subtle degrees into this dullness and drowsiness. And so if that happens, then one should turn the mind away from that primary meditation subject to something else. Okay, then the Buddha says that if when you do that, if the drowsiness does not disappear, then you should think and reflect within your mind about the Dhamma as you have learned it, heard it, and you should mentally review it. And so then one reflects discursively about the Dhamma, instead of trying to focus the mind on a single object, one just reviews and reflects, and in that way, through the discursive thinking, the mind might get stimulated. Then in the third place, the Buddha says, If this method does not work, then you should learn some Dhamma by heart. Practice memorizing some texts. In the days of the Buddha, of course, the monks would always learn the suttas by memory. And so this would be (laughs) just a very routine activity, not a major challenge the way it is to our lazy minds today. Then the Buddha says, in the fourth place, if that doesn't work, then you can shake your ears and rub your limbs with the palm of your hand. As if you rub the ears, maybe face, and rub the palms of the hand, the arms, the legs, then that will stimulate the circulation and then through the stimulation, to the circulation, then the mind might get refreshed. Then in the fifth place, the Buddha says, <coughs> If that doesn't work, then you should get up from your seat and wash your eyes with water and look around in all directions and look up at the sky look up at the stars so if it's night one will look up at the stars and see all look look up at the sky and see all of the stars in the sky maybe the moon and then that can have an inspiring effect which uplifts the mind or if it's daylight one can just gaze into the clear blue of the sky and then that could help to brighten the mind. Okay, then sixth, the Buddha says, if by doing this, the drowsiness is still not dispelled, then you should establish this alokasanya, the inner perception of light. As it is by day, so it should be at night. That is, if you are meditating at night, you should try to make the mind as bright as if it were the daylight. And as it is by night, so also by day. And then thus, with a mind clear and unobstructed, you should develop a consciousness full of brightness. Then the Buddha says in the seventh place, if this method does not disappear, then you should walk up and down through the Sakman Bhavana, with your senses turned inwards and not letting the mind get distracted outwardly. So one turns the mind to an inward point of focus and does the Sakman Bhavana, the walking meditation. Then in the eighth place, if all the methods fell and one is still getting oppressed by dullness and drowsiness, then the Buddha says one can lie down mindfully in the lying posture that's on the right side, mindful and clearly comprehensive and clearly conscious, keeping in mind the thought of rising. Then one can Fall asleep and take a little nap, and then as soon as one wakes up from the nap, one should immediately get up and thinking, thinking, I won't indulge in the enjoyment of sleeping and reclining, but I will apply my energy. But that method of lying down to take the nap—that's, <laughs> yeah. no, that's the eighth method when everything else fails. <laughs> Okay, so those are the methods, the eight methods the Buddha recommends for overcoming sloth and torpor. Also another method which is recommended in the commentaries for stimulating the mind is to cultivate the recollection of death marana sati I mentioned that earlier in connection with desire but if one is becoming very lazy and lethargic and negligent then if one contemplates the inevitability of death then that will arouse the mind <laughs> to make an effort in order to vanquish Mara and his army Okay, the fourth hindrance is also made up of two components. This is called restlessness and worry. Udacha kukucha. Sometimes translated restlessness and remorse or agitation and worry. And this is a double hindrance made up of two components which are again a little different from each other but similar in that they have very closely resembling effects upon the mind. Both of them are united in causing agitation of the mind, disturbance of the mind, in stirring up the mind. The first udacha is just like anxious restlessness, distractedness, where the mind just wanders purposelessly, meaninglessly from one thought to another it becomes excited by this, agitated by that, planning what is going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month, then it might return to memories about the past, puzzlement about what's going on outside, just all sorts of fragments of thought just arise one after another without any seeming meaningful connection between them. That is Udacca. The other quality udacha is called Kukucha, which is sometimes translated worry, but it has the specific meaning not of worry about the future, but worry about what one has done in the past. That is, it's the quality of remorse or regret. That is, if one has done something wrong in the past or neglected to fulfill some duty that one should have done, then one starts feeling guilty about one's omission and commission and starts worrying what is the consequence of my negligence. One feels oppressed by remorse and regret. And so, also this has a very disturbing, disturbing and agitating effect on the mind. And so we have these two states, restlessness and worry. And because they are similar in their effect upon the mind, then the remedies for them are the same, pretty much the same. And here the Buddha just speaks in a very general way. He says he abides with the mind inwardly peaceful. He purifies his mind from restlessness and remorse. And he doesn't specify any specific meditation subject here but we have to consider to overcome restlessness and remorse what is a meditation subject that will be helpful. And so, teachers often recommend something which can calm and still the agitated mind. So they often recommend anapanasati, mindfulness and breathing. Because here the mind is a very simple, meditation subject. The task is just to focus upon it. One doesn't have to reflect and think, but just keep the mind focused on the breath. Then the mind will (laughs) gradually settle down and become still. This does not work successfully for some people. Another meditation subject that is often found to be helpful in giving some peace and tranquility to the mind is Buddhanusati, contemplation of the Buddha. If the mind is very distressed by these thoughts of worry, and excitement and restlessness, then one can take the statue or a picture of the Buddha, and just focus upon this very peaceful, inspiring, confidence-building image of the all-enlightened one, then one can just reflect on whichever of the nine qualities one's mind has some affinity for, like arahang, arahang, or butto, butto, or bhagavā, bhagavā. One just takes one of these qualities, sometimes maybe even one can take three, like bhagavā, arahāng, sammā, sambhūto, and just focuses again and again on those qualities until the mind settles down and becomes calm and concentrated. So we can say that this is a medicine or remedy for restlessness and worry. Okay, the fifth of the five hindrances is doubt. The chicky other, And the type of doubt that is involved here, as I mentioned last time, it's not the ordinary type of inquiring or investigative doubt where there might be something you don't understand or you have some question about the teaching or some questions about the practice, something that you're just uncertain of, that's a normal healthy type of doubt which leads one to investigate and inquire deeper and more thoroughly. But this is a kind of skeptical doubt, a, say, I call it a chronic indecisiveness and an inability to make up one's mind and to commit oneself. The Buddha usually explains this type of doubt as being fourfold. That is, one doubts the enlightened one the master? Maybe, is he re- really the enlightened one? Or maybe just a great spiritual teacher like many others? Or maybe just a nice guy who, <laughs> who got involved? <a> <laughs> and so, <laughs> one has this inability to really. Take refuge in the Buddha, then one has doubts about the teaching, the Dhamma. Is there really such a thing as karma and rebirth? Is there really the Four Noble Truths? Are they really valid? Is there really such a thing as dependent arising? Achieve stages of enlightenment. Maybe they're just become deluded through some special psychological experience and they think I've achieved this, I've achieved that, but one doubts whether it's really possible to attain, for anybody to attain anything. And then the fourth basis of doubt is doubt about the training, about the practice. Will this practice really lead to enlightenment? will it really lead to liberation? And so, when states of doubt arise, when they have a justifiable basis, then the Buddha says, when you have doubt, investigate and inquire. He doesn't say, suppress doubt, just believe and accept on trust. But if there is genuine investigative doubt, then the Buddha says, come and ask, come and investigate. Then when you investigate, you study the teaching, you come to a teacher and ask questions, then the doubts will get cleared up. But then when this chronic indecisiveness or this skeptical doubt comes up, then what is to be done about it? Because until one reaches the stage of stream entry, then one doesn't get rid of the tendency to doubt. It. It's only the Sotapanna who has seen the truth of the Dhamma for himself who can utterly eradicate doubt so they can no longer arise. But for ordinary people, below that level, states of doubt, perplexity, can arise. And So when states of doubt arise, one has to recognize that one cannot achieve absolute certainty about the teachings just by intellectual inquiry or even by one's limited practices. But what has to be done is to take those aspects of the teaching that one can see for oneself. For example, the Buddha gives some useful advice to the Kalamas in the Kalama Sutta. You can see for yourself, when greed, anger, and delusion arise in the mind, do they lead to your own welfare or to your harm? And they say, to our own harm. Do they lead to the welfare of others or to the harm of others? The harm of others. Okay, when their opposites, when generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom arise in the mind, do they lead to one's harm or to one's benefit? To one's suffering or to one's happiness? One can see that they lead to one's happiness. And when they arise in the mind, do they lead to the harm of others? or to the welfare and happiness of others. We could see that they lead to the welfare and happiness of others. And so by direct experience, we can see that greed, hatred, and delusion are harmful to ourselves and harmful to others, while the elimination of greed, hatred, and delusion will lead to the benefit, to our own benefit, and to the benefit of others. And so, from this, we can understand that a teaching which will lead to the elimination and finally to the eradication of greed, hatred, and delusion, must be a teaching which will be beneficial to us and a teaching which promotes the development of generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, this will be a teaching that will be of benefit to ourselves and others. And so on that basis, we can place a certain degree of trust and confidence in the Buddha, in his teaching, and in those who represent the teacher, the Aryan Sun. And we can realize that the path of practice, the training, is a beneficial path. And on that basis, we then apply ourselves to the practice until through the practice we see that it brings increasing happiness in our life, it leads to the purification of the mind, the development of wholesome qualities, and this will give us the trust to continue further until we reach that point where all the vichikicca, doubt, is eradicated. Okay, so we can say that this is a means or a medicine for overcoming doubt. We can say investigation, study, investigation, inquiry, and maybe we call this provisional practice, where we don't throw ourselves fully into the practice, but we try a little bit until we can get good results. Okay, so these are the five hindrances, and for each of these, hin- the five hindrances, these are the illnesses of the mind, the, the diseases of the mind, the ailments of the world, and then the Buddha is the great physician who prescribes the different medicines, the remedies for these types of illness and we've discussed for each of the major illnesses a few of the medicines that the Buddha prescribes. now in this sutta, after the Buddha gives this simple standard statement on the five hindrances, he follows it up with a very nice passage in which he gives five similes for the hindrances. This is in paragraph 14. And since he gives five hindrances, the commentary explains that each of these similes represents a particular hindrance. So we begin with a man who takes a loan in order to start a business. Then his business succeeds. So that he can repay the old loan and he has enough income so that he can take a wife and marry and take a wife and support a wife and children. Then when he considers this then he becomes glad and full of joy. So according to the commentary this is like the mind which has been released from kama chanda from sensual desire, or craving for the things of the world. When the mind is oppressed by desire, that's like being in a state of debt. Always under obligation to the creditor, the creditor comes and says, when are you going to pay back? And You have to say, soon sir, soon sir, please let me, let me extend the loan a few more weeks. You'd better pay back on that date. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. So then you're always living in fear and worry. But then, when you're free to pay back for that. then you're like your own master, under obligation to no one. So that's like the mind free from sense-desire. Then the second hindrance, ill-will, This is like a man who is afflicted, suffering, and gravely ill, so that his food doesn't agree with him. He can't enjoy his food. One gives him delicious food, but whatever he eats is distasteful. And his body has no strength, very weak. But then later when he regains his health and recovers from his affliction then he becomes strong again and his food is agreeable to him he can enjoy his meal so ill will and anger that's like an illness of the mind which takes away all one's strength and makes everything disagreeable when the mind has anger and ill will people do things that are Helpful to you, and they try to cheer you up. But if the mind is in a bad mood, and everything they do is just disagreeable, and so one doesn't like this, doesn't like that, they prepare your favorite food, and no, you don't want to eat. You're not hungry. Okay, the third hindrance. Loss and torpor. This is like a prison. It's like a man who is locked up, locked up in a prison. He's put into this little room with three walls and a prison cage, and he looks around. All he can see are the walls. He just looks through the bars of the prison cage, and he cannot move around easily, and everything, everybody on the outside, he imagines that they're all enjoying themselves, but he has to sit here in the same little room, getting the dull, dreary food, day after day, and forced maybe to do work outside in the courtyard of the prison, then, when the sun sets, brought back into the little cell. So it's a very dull and dreary life. That is like the mind overcome by tina mita, dullness and drowsiness. But then, if the man gets a notice, suddenly they discover that he was not the criminal after all. Somebody else has been found and he's released and allowed to go out, then he becomes very happy and joyful. He's now a free man who can go wherever he wants. And so he has no loss to his property. And so that is that sensation of happiness and joy of being released from prison. That is the happiness of being free from this heavy, oppressive, Lost and torpid. Then the fourth hindrance restlessness and worry this is compared to a state of slavery being a slave. If there's a man who is a slave then he's completely dependent on others he has to work for others, they can beat him, they treat him miserably and he cannot complain so this is like the state of if the owners of the slaves say, go here, do this job, he has to go if they say, go there, do this job he has to go clean up this prepare this, cook that, all the orders he has to fulfill. Cannot object, doesn't get any vocation or liberty, constantly at the beck and call of others. And so when the mind is governed by, or overwhelmed by restlessness and worry, then it's just like in a state of servitude to the worrying, agitated thoughts of the mind. One thought of agitation comes up and the mind is driven in this direction. But another thought comes up and the mind has to run in the other direction. And so the mind just becomes a slave pushed here and there by one thought after another. But if the slave is given his freedom, then he becomes happy and full of joy. And do whatever he wants to do. And so when the mind is free from restlessness and worry, then the mind becomes its own master. It's able to think whatever thought it wants to think, and if it doesn't want to think certain thoughts, it won't think them. The mind is calm, composed, and autonomous its own master. Then the fifth hindrance, doubt, is compared to a traveler traveling across a desert, carrying all of his wealth and property when the mind is afflicted by doubt, then one is traveling across a spiritual desert, one doesn't see any relief in sight. It's a very dry, hot, oppressive situation. But then later on, when the man crosses the desert without any trouble from robbers, any problems along the way, then he becomes happy and full of joy. And that is similar to the mind which is free from doubt. And so the Buddha says, now we're at the end of paragraph 14, so too Bhikkhu's when these five entrances are unabandoned in and, unabandoned and himself, then a bhikkhu sees himself respectively, see, the, the bhikkhu sees them respectively as a debt, a disease, a prison house, as slavery, and as a road across a desert. But when these five hindrances have been abandoned in himself, he sees this as freedom from debt, as healthiness, as release from prison, as freedom from slavery, and as a land of safety, a place of security. And that is the section on the five inclusions. Okay, then we will stop the discourse here. And if there are any questions on anything brought up on the five inclusions, and please feel free to ask. If somebody says people are supposed to be Buddhist, if if they go behind other religious practices. Rites and rituals are just like sacrifices, uh, puja and things like that. Does that, that, that amount to which doubt? I wouldn't say that that necessarily amounts to doubt. It would depend on the reason. No, I think we have to understand just doubt is a mental state. I mean, if they have doubt about, say, the Buddha Dhamma, and so they think, well, if yep, the Buddha Dhamma <laughs> might be might be the true path, so I better practice um, meditation, Buddhist meditation. But maybe this one is the true path, so let me in case that should turn out to be the true path, let me undergo these rituals. And maybe that is the true path, so let me engage in these practices. Then that's a state of doubt. But the, the doubt is in the mental process and not in the activities. What do you mean by silaputta? I would understand that too. First, even though it's usually translated like clinging to rites and rituals. Actually, truly and literally, "sila bhutta doesn't mean rites and rituals. What it referred to at the time of the Buddha were the practices of other aesthetic groups that were intended to be the way to liberation. Sila, I would take to be the adherence to certain rules, not the precepts, not the moral precepts, but certain practices, like the term is used in the context of those who undertake what they call the dog sila, or a cow sila. An ascetic will live just like a dog. Another ascetic will live just like a cow. They'll crawl on the ground. They'll practice. The dog ascetic will bark like a dog. He won't speak. He won't accept food given to his hands. The food has to be thrown on the ground. (laughs) And, well, that's one extreme example, but then there were beliefs that All sorts of different ascetic practices were the way to liberation and these were called Sīlā Bhattā. And so the Buddha's teaching rejects these practices as being paths to liberation. And so I would understand the original meaning of the rejection of Sīlā Bhattā Paramāsa to be the rejection of these outside ascetic vows and observances as being the way to liberation. But I think we could also understand that this term could be taken to cover engaging in rituals and rites and ceremonies in the belief that these are sufficient to give liberation or even a higher rebirth. But I would say definitely that it does not in any way prohibit engaging in conventional rites and rituals either as a way of conforming to social custom (coughs) or as a way of developing the mind. For example, performing the ordinary Buddhist rituals with an awareness of their significance. Then say, Bodhi-Tri-Puja or Buddha-Vandana, and reciting Pirit-suttas. If it's done with the understanding that this is a way of training the mind, then it's not sealed about the paramasa in any way. So yeah. about this Satchakra. Now we are talking about Satchakala. Yeah. Can we uh conclude that Satchakha was under this uh spell of uh doubt? Because he was having doubts. He was after what he explained all these you yeah. still have doubt Well, I, I would understand that doubt in the context of the five hindrances is a mental state that arises in a Buddhist practitioner who is still not yet able to make a complete commitment to the Triple Gem, to the practice. In the case of Satchika, he never became a follower of the Buddha. I mean, so he would have Bichikita, Bichikicha so strong that he never got gained Sada and never went for refuge. So he had doubt all right, Bichikicha. But in his case, doubt wasn't one of the five hindrances, but it was just, it was even stronger than the five hindrances. It was just an obstruction even to undertaking even in obstruction, even to going for refuge and for taking up the practice of the Dhamma. Any other questions? Okay, then we will continue next week. I want to mention that we have, there's a book from Thailand that came to free distribution. So anybody who would like a copy, it's a biograph autobiography of one of the great living meditation masters of Thailand. I think he's now ninety seven years old. Ha chan So anybody who would like a copy can take one. But if there are husband and wives here, please one copy for a couple so that they can go, go around. Mr. Ratnayaka? Do you have any time these days? Is that for typing? There's a Mr. Curry Watson who's working here. He, he works up here right at that desk. You know yeah. He's my the assistant editor. He has a paper that has to be typed, and Miss Alecum, the regular type, of, she always has the office work. Right. Right. If you want, any time you're going to keep coming, either the morning, the afternoon, any anytime you can come, just you come up.